and welcome to this edition of Veterans to Success. And today I have with me Charlotte Hayes. Hello, Charlotte. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Joe. And welcome. And we've got, listen, right, you're in for a big treat today because we're going to be, as usual, we don't do a big introduction or anything because we do the reveal as we're talking and we're discussing stuff. Right, so let's go straight into it today. Um, what I'd like to find out, Right, because I know your I know your career and I know how amazing it is, right? The thing is that the guys listening don't. So I want to take you back first of all to to your life before the military. If you just give me some feedback on that, please. So um I grew up with in Stafford in the Midlands, um, with my mum and dad. I've got an older sister and a younger brother, and I went to a state primary school and a state high school, went to a pretty rough high school. That was a fair amount of <laughs> at school but um, I think um, not necessarily fear of teachers but maybe fear of my mother not saying she was a bad person <laughs> she definitely missed her calling as a sergeant major in the army um, I was kept on the straight and narrow um, technically I would say I'm from a military family but when I was growing up I didn't really feel that military influence it's only since it was a career that I took that I've learned more about it so my grandfather on my dad's side was in the RAF he was a flight sergeant and he served in World War II but oh, the granddad the granddad that I knew never talked about it it this was only stuff that we found out when he died and we applied for all of his service records so he never talked about it never spoke it we had no influence from that side my mum's dad was in the Black Watch and he'd served after the Second World War but had gone over to Germany once uh, the end of the war was declared. So he'd been right. in occupied Germany, as they say. And we knew that he was in the Black Watch. He got to the rank of sergeant as well. But again, we didn't really know much about his career. All, all I knew is that he really loved the bagpipes growing up. Again, he didn't really talk about it very much um, other than really loving the bagpipes. And even though he was from Stoke-on-Trent, he was drafted to the Black to a Scottish regiment because of right. obviously casualties. And, and that was my only military influence, really. I didn't really know much about it. My mum wasn't in the army. And I went, I joined the Brownies and the Girl Guides, as most young children do. And I hated guide camp so much because it rained <laughs> that my the guide leader had to ring my dad to come and collect me because I was crying so much. Um, yeah, so I just think, Definitely a military career was not on the horizon. All I really, really wanted to be was an engineer. I absolutely loved electronics. My um, dad always let me tinker with him because he was a mechanic. And at school in the topic design and technology, you could choose to do metalwork, electronics and technical drawing or textiles and home economic yeah. home economic. And literally all the girls chose home economics and cooking, and I chose electronics and technical drawing. So wow. yeah, so you you would have stood out uh, doing that then, wouldn't you? Yeah, so and I, my school never blocked that. So this is, you know, 1994 when I chose my GCSE top, topics. They never said, oh, you'll be the only boy or that you need to do textiles and cooking. That was never, ever said. It was just like, yeah, you can do that if you want to. So that's that's what I did. And then... When I left school, I did an apprenticeship in electrical electronic engineering with a company called GEC at the time, but they're now Alstom, as people know them. Oh, uh, yeah, I know GEC, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, but unfortunately, as I was uh, going through my apprenticeship, um, the government pulled funding for apprenticeships. It was a Labour government at the time, but right. let's not get political. And um, they, so my apprenticeship was ended. Um, right. What year and, was that? What year was that, that was in year 1999. So I was um, 19 years old and I'd kind of had the, the rug pulled from beneath me because the plan was I'd do my technician apprenticeship, I'd qualify as a technician and then I'd stay working for GC as they were then and I'd do my degree uh, part-time whilst working for them as, as a student apprentice then they called it. Um, but yeah, I was I was made redundant, but I wasn't made redundant because you can't make an apprentice redundant because we're not a proper employee. Yeah. Um, but what they had to do legally was they had to give us a um, retraining grant because they'd committed to train us and then not trained us. They had to give us a grant to go and retrain ourselves. So because I'd done my BTEC Higher National already as part of my apprenticeship, I'd got that far for it through. It meant that I could actually apply to go to university. So I applied for university to do electronic engineering and I used my grant from my severance package to pay for university. Then when I was at university, classic, I got hoodwinked into joining the officer training corps. Right. And uh, before I knew it, I was in the officer training corps. I went to do my uh, Sandhurst uh, selection process, which then was called the regular commissions board. It's called something else now. Um, I'm not sure what it's called now. Um, so I went and did my regular commissions board. I passed my regular commissions board. Um, and honestly, I cannot say where this notion to join the military came from. It just happened. Um, I think I was a bit seduced. I was told that I could play sport and do loads of adventure training. And as you know, I've just been away skiing for a couple of weeks, so they didn't yeah. lie. But also, once I'd passed my RCB and been given a place at Sandhurst on completion of my degree, um, because I was doing electronics and the Army really wanted engineers they offered me a bursary which is again to pay for you to be at university so I had my grant and I had my bursary so I, I'm not saying I was a rich student but I definitely didn't come out of university with all the debt that students usually yeah. come out of university yeah. and the deal was if I took the bursary I had to serve a minimum of three years didn't have to pay the money back just had to serve three years so I was a bit like hang on a minute you give me some cash to go to university and then you give me a job for three years where do I sign so yeah. that was it. And the plan was only to do three years. And 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> no, the thing no, is, no. right. And, and it's it's great because I love it. I love it when I'm talking to uh, guys who are military or ex-military, because you just go through it as a matter of fact. The fact is that from my point of view, because having served for uh, a while, um, I know that there's a lot of stuff going on there. And I mean, for, for, for starters, you must be not rat right for in the sense that in the guys you didn't like being out in, in the rain and then all of a sudden you're thrust into, into the army. What I see from what you've said so far is you utilise the three words that I love, that phrase, improvise, adapt and overcome. Because it doesn't matter what was thrown at you. You got, you got made redundant from an apprenticeship and then you looked and you thought, right, OK, so I've got to... I've got this grant. What am I going to do? So you just you were constantly in my from what I gather, constantly looking for solutions rather than being stuck in the problem, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think um, at the time I wouldn't have recognised it. But now 
years gives you wisdom. I think I'm quite the positive person. And mm. now that I'm more aware of um, making success in my personal and professional life, I deliberately choose language um, that I feel has a positive impact. And I'm almost coaching myself yeah. to be positive. And whenever I'm in a problem, I'm very good. And I don't know if this is uh, just a natural ability or something that I've learned. I'm very good at understanding there's aspects of a problem that I cannot control. And I can sit there and I can get het up about the things that I cannot control. And that will get me nowhere. You know, like getting stuck in a traffic jam. Some people get really stressed that they're stuck in a traffic jam. Yeah. I'm stuck in a traffic jam. There's absolutely nothing I can do about it. There is no point changing lanes. There's no point driving up someone's backside. No. There's just no point. You're stuck in the traffic jam. I'm very good at just accepting that um, and looking for what I can change. So what can I change? Well, I can ring ahead and say, I'm very sorry, I'm stuck in traffic jam. I'm going to be a little bit late. And then because I've let the person know that I'm going to be late, the pressure or the anxiety just goes. Yeah. Um, so I think I do that in a problem anyway. I, I, I like to think that I just go, well, I can't change that, but what can I do to make me feel better about it? Or what can I do to bring something positive about it? Exactly. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, yeah, because I, I see people getting et up in traffic jams and I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Hey, I, I, <laughs> And I must admit, I was probably one of those people that used to get up about it. And now I just leave earlier and, and plan the journey better. And if I do get stuck like you, I'll just phone a client or phone wherever I'm going to and say, look, hey, I'm a bit stuck. And, and you know what I find? Probably 99.9% .9 of the time, unless I'm going to see someone who's really grumpy and then they're going to be grumpy, whatever. Uh, the fact is, when I contact them, in their world, it doesn't matter. They'll just do something else. Whereas if you consume yourself with the problem, then it becomes everything, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and I think, like, it, like exactly like you said, though, planning is key. Like I always give myself plenty of time to get there. I've got two daughters, and they always say, Mummy, why are we always early? And I say, we're never early. We're perfectly on time, never late. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah so because i do give myself that factor of being delayed i put it in there so i hate to keep people waiting because my time's not more precious than their time but if i genuinely can't help it hopefully they know me well enough that i have probably set off half an hour spare and i am genuinely stuck in the traffic yeah, yeah. and there's something I, I can do about it and that's an interesting point actually because now especially um as as you mentioned before about growing older, wiser. Um, now I recognise that time is just at a premium. Uh, it, it was still the same when I was 20, but now that I'm older, like I think, right, okay, so I've only got so many Christmases left or so many summer holidays left before I probably check out. Uh, and I'm not sure when I'm checking out, but the thing is that I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I want to do. Yeah. And I think like time is you can't really put a pressure, a, a price tag on time, even if it's business time where you might put a price tag on it. But if you're late for something, you're holding somebody else's day up, which might yeah. impact them in they end up working a little bit late. So yeah. they don't get home to be at the fitness club or, you know, their carer responsibility. Or family, or, uh, yeah. So I don't like being held up at work. 
it makes me start to feel anxious. Am I going to make it to pick the kids up? So yeah. I don't want to put that feeling on somebody else. So, yeah, mutual respect. Exactly. Is, yeah. And and talking about mutual respect, let's go to your training and and in in Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers, right? And 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 we got to say, I, I do want to I do want to bring forward the point that. You are a female in what could be considered as a man's world, a vehicle mechanic or electrical mechanic or whatever. What were the challenges that you faced? How did you deal with them? Uh, and how did you brush stuff off? So I would say that my definitely my experience of being um, offered my bursary and going into Sandhurst, there was... Of, there's not many girls. So when I went to Sandhurst, the intake was the January intake, there was 300 officer cadets, 36 of us were female, only 21 of us commissioned. The failure rate at Santos was quite high um, due to injuries from the physical yeah. demands. So when I was coming through Sanders, it was 2004, the world had changed, we'd gone to war with uh, in Iraq for the second time, yeah. Operation Tick, Operation Herricks were coming. And so they just started to change the training at Sandhurst for, although girls were not allowed in the infantry or the cavalry until 2016, we were allowed in the um, in all the other roles. And as we know, in asymmetric warfare, there's no front line. So whether you're a medic, Remy, Royal Engineers, you're on the front line. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you're on the front line. Although they didn't say you could have that until 2016. I was in a forward operating base in Herrick. I was on foot patrol with the infantry. That was the front line. And that was 2009, 2016. Yeah. They rubber stamped it. So a lot of the girls struggled sometimes with the physical demands of carrying all the weight and the equipment, even at Sandhurst. I didn't. I was lucky. I don't know why. Maybe it's genetics. Maybe it's a lifetime of sport because I was that weird kid at primary school that did cross country. And then I did cross country all through high school. Not many people like running around muddy fields. I do. Um, right. And then um, when I uh, joined the REMI, again, for my intake, I was the only female. So 17 of us commissioned into the REMI and I was the only female. And again, I never felt like necessarily like I was the only female because the REMI never made me feel that way. I was just another officer. I was an engineering officer, and there was a lot of talk of being an engineering officer. Now, I've lived my 20-year career in a similar environment as has been talked about a lot in the Atherton report about sexist comments, sexist remarks. I've personally never been um, sexually assaulted or anything like that, but I've definitely had, in my 20 years, what I would call maybe banter, that's a little bit on the line. But again, I feel like it was a it was the society at the time. So back in the early 2000s, the jokes or the banter, yeah, they weren't by today's standards, you would have said that's disgusting. But back then, I just kind of, you know, laughed along with it, laughed on with it. Was I offended? No, I wasn't offended. I just got on with my job. But yeah, thinking back, if I applied today's values from society and what I understand now and what I would think is an acceptable way to talk to my daughter, it wasn't acceptable. Back yeah. in 2000, early 2000s, I was just like, 
laughed it off as one of the lads. Maybe yeah. I wouldn't be one of the lads now. But it doesn't matter. I don't feel like anything was done wrong to me. Sometimes I felt that when I walked into a room, I had to overperform. So yeah. to get the trust of male, not soldiers, but male senior soldiers. So we're talking sergeants, staff sergeants, warrant officers. To get their trust and respect, I often found that I had to really prove myself, maybe overperform. But yeah. nobody made me do that. So that might have been something that I put on myself. Or to spin that around, a, a sergeant, a staff sergeant or a warrant officer, they're quite senior soldiers and they're experts in what they do and what they know. So if I was to put myself in that situation and I saw a, a junior officer coming into the room, I might be a bit wary and think, what have you got? You know, mm. are you going to be any good? Because they've got a responsibility to look after the junior soldiers because that's how the chain of command works. And they've got a new, relatively, you know, young, fresh officer coming in. They might be a bit protective. They might be a bit guarded. So yeah. I do think that I had to earn my stripes or earn my pips, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Was it be was it sexist? Maybe not. Was it more like show us what you've got? Show us if you're any good at your job. Maybe it was a more of a professional. Prove yourself first. In later life, I've unfortunately, um, definitely been discriminated against when I was pregnant with my second child actually in 2017 which is quite shocking so you would think "Mm, Mm. yeah so well well, can we we come to that in a minute because I just want to pick up on something because what I've what I've discovered because I've 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 done quite a few podcasts now with guys men and women and what what I've drawn from that is a lot of it's down to attitude right and and like I remember when I was in a wheelchair after my incident, someone called uh, my first incident when I was 14. And this lad used to call me a cripple uh, and, and everything. And, and I just thought, right, well, I, I, looking back at it now in the eyes of someone who's a lot older, I can see that I was just processing it a little bit differently because at first I got upset and then I thought, well, that's his problem if he thinks I'm a cripple because I'm going to show him that I'm not. And I did because four years later I, I joined the army. And and I think that you've obviously, because we've had we've had a few conversations now, and I think we get we've got a bit of a an understanding of what our makeup is. And you've definitely got a positive attitude and, and a, a sort of so what attitude if 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 you wanna if you wanna make something a nothing, that's your problem. Does that make sense? <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely like, well, okay, I'm I think I'm very lucky and I'm like, well, that's your opinion, but that's not me. And mm. I, I'll let it wash over me. But I do take, I do, I am a bit of an overthinker and I do internalize sometimes failure too much. Right. But the way that I deal with that is I go out of my way to do it better next time. Mm. So <laughs> although I yeah. might have not done but oh, I've done I've not done very well there. I'm not happy with the output, the result. I won't let myself fail twice. So I will put myself maybe under more pref- pressure to do better. But the only way you can do better is to reflect on what went wrong in the first place. So it's that learning loop. If you can't reflect on what didn't, what went well, what didn't go well, and create the what didn't go well, you can't do it better next time. But I will. It's a bit like what I said about getting struck in the traffic. I can't change that. I'll see what I can change yeah. and I'll change. 
Um, so failure does fuel me. <laughs> yeah. It does uh, inspire me to do better next time. But naysayers inspire me as well. So mm-hmm. just to touch yeah. back on on school, like I didn't go to the best school, but I had the best parents making me get through that school. And um, I had an English teacher who was just awful. He was assigned to me to be my mentor, to mentor me through my GCSEs. Yeah. And I think that all this man did was put me down and tell me that I was never going to do as well as anybody else or his daughter was doing the GCSEs at the time as well. I was never going to do as well as her um, because I wasn't disciplined enough to sit down and do homework and study. And I hadn't even made myself a revision timetable because like a revision timetable makes you pass exams. <laughs> and... Um, of course it does. I was a I was a bit like, you know, economy of effort. I don't need to make a pretty timetable. I just need to study <laughs> the bits oh. that I don't know. So I remember that this 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 man put me down a lot and he kept t- saying things to me like I'd be lucky to get a D in most of my subjects. Mm. And I don't know if his naysaying made me think, I'll show you. Yeah. But I boy did I show him. It, it's surprising you use that phrase because in one in in something where I describe what happened to me, I say I'll show you. Yeah, yeah. So and I've had that again as well. So I've had that later on in life um, when I did my um, command and staff course um, at Shrivenham at the Defence University at Shrivenham. I was there as a single mom. So I had my eldest daughter with me as on my own. My husband was still in the army at the time and the army, uh, as compassionate as they normally are, had uh, posted him somewhere else. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was a single mom on my own with a one-year-old child that had a few additional medical requirements. It was pretty stressful. Uh, okay. she, didn't, she didn't sleep, bless her. And I needed to study in the evenings and pass the exams. And... In all honesty, I didn't pass as well as I wanted to pass, but I passed. Mm. Um, so I did have to have a little pet talk to myself about sometimes you don't have to do the best all the time. You have to do enough, the 80% solution. Um, but again, there was a directing staff, DS as we call them in the army, yeah. that told me that I potentially should leave the army because if I can't prioritize all the reading in the evening and prioritize my career I shouldn't be in the army and I was just like blown away by his response um but I just think he was a dinosaur because any modern uh like senior officer in the army I'd be horrified if they said that now I just want to. I just want to delve a little bit deeper on that because I know a little bit about the history of that. Can you just set the scene, only going into the detail you want to, on on the birth of your first daughter, the challenges that you faced? Then you go uh, on this command uh, and staff course uh, to be told that. So, what had happened on the build up to that, please? So. Obviously, uh, my husband and I had got married, both serving, and we'd never, ever lived together. Right. Uh, we decided to go live firing, as we called it, and I got pregnant with Amber. Um, when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was, uh, went for my 12-week scan, like most uh, parents do go, uh, we were told that there was something wrong with the baby, and they was, wasn't sure what was wrong, but something was wrong. Um, so then we had pretty bad roller coaster you know um a cvs an amniocentesis to figure out what was wrong we were 
offered um, abortions every week. We didn't want an abortion. We decided that whatever life has thrown at our baby, we'll deal with it. Um, because at the time, there was a lot of, because um, my husband was rifles, there was a lot of people coming back from Afghanistan with life-changing injuries, and they were learning to live with these life-changing injuries. So we thought, if has something life-limiting, it doesn't mean she can't have some life. Like, these soldiers mm. from Afghanistan, they're still going to have a life. Yeah. Who are we to dictate that they, that she shouldn't be here? So we decided to continue with the pregnancy. And eventually, we got our diagnosis. So my, my daughter has which is a whole other podcast. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> she came into the world and uh, yeah, we were in hospital for a while and all's well and good. She's alive, she's thriving and she's 10 now. So oh, wow, congratulations. Good. But the first couple of years of her of her life, there was a lot of unknowns, a lot of what would she need support-wise, medication-wise, medical in- interventions, would she need heart surgery, would she need kidney transplant? That In the very early years, there was a lot of, We'll just have to see how it goes um, before we know what we need to do. Um, so I came, I had my maternity leave, which everyone has in the army, and it's up to you whether you take six, nine or one year. And I did take one year. But when I came back off maternity leave, I had to go to the to do my command and staff college course because I'd been promoted. And in order to keep your rank, you have to do the course. Um, we spoke to the army a lot about having... Um, my husband remain at One Rifles in Chepstow and they promised that they would keep him at One Rifles and then they posted him to central London. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. What a great move. So, yeah, that's army records for you, isn't it? Really? Yeah. So that meant that I had to go to staff college on my own as a single parent with a child that potentially, uh, well, I always say she just needs more consideration because she's, she's got medication, she's got things going wrong with her, she needs more hospital checkups. Da, da, da. So where, sort of... were you, where, where were you living when you were at the Commander's Staff College then? Were you in in the barracks with your... So we, we had our own like military quarter at One Rifles in Chepstow, and the right. idea was is that Alan would have stayed at One Rifles in Chepstow, and he would have had Amber with him, and I would have gone to Shrivenham Monday to Friday and come home at weekends. Yeah. As he was in a regiment... He would have had the more freedom to look after Amber and yeah, yeah. he's got a whole regiment that would support him. Yeah. And the rifles were pretty on side, as in his regiment. You know, he he's a dad, his wife's serving. Yeah. We don't think it's the woman's job, you know. Mm-hmm. Dad can step up and look after look after his daughter. So they were on board. But anyway, he got posted to London. Because he got posted to central London we he couldn't take amber with him yeah um the reason being is because of hospital catchment areas so we didn't want to interrupt amber's treatment so Mm. she was being seen at the children's hospital in bristol so while we were living just across the bridge in chepstow she was in there and she also went to the genetic center in cardiff with the a, a doctor called Annie Proctor, who's the country specialist in Amber's, Amber's condition. Mm. If we'd have gone to London, we would have been assigned to Luton Hospital and child medicine there, but they didn't have the experts, although yeah, yeah, yeah. they are. Which would, be, which would be hit and miss. So we made the decision, we spoke to the doctors as well, if I was to have a Swindon postcode, and Amber was to have a Swindon postcode, would we still be able to come back to Bristol and Cardiff Genetics? 
and they said yes but if we'd if amber had gone yeah. to london it would have been a definite no yeah. so it was for us it was a no-brainer like amber's medical care needed to come first so she was coming to shrivenham with me we moved into a military quarter a house family's accommodation me and her on my own and i started staff college when you start staff college, you you're interviewed by um, the various members of directing staff in mm. at staff college. The the person that oversees all of the education is a brigadier. I remember having my interview with him, and he said to me, "What does success look like?" I imagine lots of the other um, majors that were on the course probably said, "Success looks like passing with a distinction." being in the top 10%, yeah, yeah. being in the top three. And I sat there. The, the, said, the usual stuff, which is all about career. And you you said? I said, a happy, <laughs> healthy baby and a marriage still intact. Wow. <laughs> and there was what, a, what was the reaction? <laughs> there, was, it was, there was just a kind of, oh, that's different. <laughs> <laughs> Not heard that one before. No. And I... So I said to him, clearly, I'm, I want to pass, but not at the expense of my mm. marriage, because we've been under a lot of pressure yeah. um, to understanding and coming um, to terms with Amber's medical condition. And then we're under a lot of pressure because we've been separated as a married couple. Yeah. And now I'm on a really stressful course. It's a nine month course. You've got to pass it that your course report is used for all your future jobs yeah, so yeah, when yeah. you go on your other command boards if you haven't done well you're not going to get the, the the good jobs next time so there's there's a lot of pressure and um from the moment of having amber and all the way now i prescribe to understanding what your why is so and i think that you need to have two why's you need a personal why and a professional why and my personal domestic why is that my family does come first, but not but it mutually supports my professional why. My professional why mutually supports my family. So there's a boundary there. It can be a little bit flexible. It can go a bit one way and a bit the other way, but it's never completely broken. Yeah. So I think it's it's good to understand um understand what's really important to you to use as your compass through life. So at that point in life for me, my personal domestic situation had changed a lot. So I'd gone from, you know, wanting to be the next general to actually, I just want to, I still want professional success, but not yeah. at the expense of my family. Yeah. And maybe generals off the card because I'm not going to thrash myself through this course and through the next course and through all the top postings and be deployed and be away because not just because I've become a mum, Maybe it is just because I've become a mom, but maybe it was because I've become a mom with a child with a medical condition. So things have definitely changed. Yeah. And that's and thank you for sharing that that most personal and sensitive information. And I need, I wanted you to share that for the simple reason that it puts into context what the DS said to you. <laughs> um, oh, you should think about your military career and maybe leave. Oh yeah, like do one, mate. Uh, yeah. after, after you've been through all that, and he. And I would imagine that he didn't really ask the question to find out what had gone on previously. No. So he he said to me, um, you should really consider your military career if you're not going to prioritise the work now. And you should 
potentially leave the army. He also, I mean, I, I don't think this is, re- this is definitely not reflective of the army today in 2024. The army is not like that anymore. But these kind of dinosaurs did yeah. exist in 2015. They did. Yeah. I met one. <clears throat> but he also said to me, which I was absolutely flabbergasted by, he said, can't you just get your mum to come down and look after your child? And I just looked at him in absolute amazement because I thought to himself, does he just think that women shouldn't work? Because my mum in 2015 was a fully qualified social worker working really hard with the um, youth offenders prison teams, trying to rehabilitate young people and get them back into society to be active, positive members of society. And he's, he's thinking, well, you know, just get your mum to come look after her. Women yeah. don't work, do they? And I just looked at him and was like, yeah. my mum has a full-time career. You know, she can't just come and look after my child. I was a bit like, yeah. what world do you live in where you think that women should just stop working and look after children? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Which brings out two important points, I feel. One, the first one, which is critical, is always make sure that you ask great questions because then you can find out stuff. And and the other thing I've, I, I've discovered through my co- uh, courses on coaching and mentoring, and I'm sure you're the same, is do not come up with the solutions because the solutions may not be right for that person. No. So in that situation, I just kind of smiled and waved and <laughs> uh, went on and passed the course anyway. Because when someone tells me I can't, I show them that I can. Well done, you. Fantastic. So what was the point where you decided... Mm, oh, oh, yeah, of course. Uh, sorry, we, I nearly missed the point. 2017, right? You mentioned that there was a situation when you were pregnant and, and a situation with, I don't know, some testosterone-filled fellas or misogyny or whatever... The situation was I was pregnant with my second daughter, Rose, who's now six. So it was 2017. I was pregnant with her and I'd just taken command of um, a training company at the Remy's training battalion. Um, And I was pregnant. So I'd come off the command board, which, which, you know, I had met the uh, performance requirements and, off the command board and lucky for me I got my first choice as well so it was my first choice as well I wanted to go so either that means nobody else wanted it or I came off quite high and I got my first choice yeah yeah I'll go with option B (laughs) (laughs) obviously yeah why wouldn't you (laughs) um so I went to my new job and my commanding officer at the time was very disappointed that I was pregnant Um... He felt that because I was pregnant, that I wasn't capable of commanding a company of soldiers. So, and he'd gone to, mm, and bear in mind, it's a training company, so we were never going to deploy. You know, it's, Remy uh, training, phase two training is just for um, civilians, is very much like an apprentice college. So if you was to walk into the British gas uh, you know, plumbers and, and uh, heating engineers workshops. It's very similar. We've got, you know, a mock-up of the conditions that they would have to do their practicals mm. in. 
and then obviously we've got classrooms for them to do their theory in. And I, so, I, I, I get that because the Royal Engineers, we've got the Royal School of Military Engineering in Brompton, yeah. Kent. Yeah, so it, it's a, a total total setup for trades. Yeah, got you. And even though the soldiers, um, it, while they're in training, do have to go on exercise, they have to go on trade exercise. So they don't yeah. go going out and living um, fully tactical, doing fire and manoeuvre as all soldiers, regardless of cat badge, need to do. We're going to do their trade in the field. So mm. even on those exercises, there was no physical strain on me because essentially what the Remi will do, they will deploy to an area where you can affect repairs on vehicles. So hard standing water, electricity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's camping basically. <laughs> it's not hard. <laughs> so um I was we'd been to Officer's Coffee, it happens weekly. We were walking back from Officer's Coffee and he said, Hey, pop down to my office. I'd like to have a chat. So I said, No problem, sir. I'll just get my beret and my notebook because whenever you go into commanding officer's office, you make sure you've got your headdress on, salute yeah. and pray respect he said hey you don't need your beret you don't need your notebook just mm, come down interesting. interesting so i went down for the chat uh sat in his office and he was like um literally said growing a baby is very difficult it can be very tiring <laughs> um i don't want to put you or your baby at any risk so i have found a replacement your replacement will arrive on Monday and then you will move into battalion headquarters and you will work on discrete projects. Really? And, yeah. And I was just absolutely dumbfounded because essentially what he'd done is removed me from my command yeah. when I was off the command board and, appoint, and even found a replacement and appointed a replacement. And as, as a pregnant female, your protective characteristic. And, and uh, you know, I, I was a non-commissioned officer, so I'm not sure of the protocol. Uh, maybe something wasn't, certainly maybe in today's uh, field, and then it wouldn't, be the, it wouldn't be the correct way to go about it, would it? No, so when you're pregnant in the army, the first thing that needs to happen is, well, you don't have to reveal your pregnancy straight away, because obviously wait till you have your 12 week scan but you can yeah. you go to the medical center if you suspect you're pregnant admittedly some people don't realize until a bit later you go to the medical center you do a pregnancy test and they will put you on light duties and it won't say you're on light duties because you're pregnant if you don't want anyone to know it's up to yeah. you if you want any if you want people to know then it can say on your appendix yeah. nine Got you. Totally up to you. By week 20, though, if you're pregnant at week 20, you have to disclose it because when you're 20 weeks pregnant, you definitely can't do some duties. So you're restricted from, you know, going on exercise, doing fire and maneuver. You know, who's going to want a leopard call when you're pregnant? You're yeah. not going to be doing battle PT. You're not going on the log run, are you? No. You definitely, you might not be doing duties, especially if they're overnight duties. Mm. Um just because if you're tired and you fall, you you yeah. know, that's an ideal situation. And depending on where you work, if you work, maybe if you're having to climb lots of ladders or walk on mezzanine floors, you might have some restrictions that you need to work on ground level if there's no lifts because they might, you know, 
not want you climbing up and down ladders. You so, know, so there's, yeah, there's some inherent risks with certain duties. Yeah. So what you're supposed to do when you're pregnant is your commander, when you've declared that you're pregnant, your commander has to fill out a risk assessment. So they have to look at your job and identify all the risks of your normal job and mitigate those risks and put controls in place like you would do with any health and safety. Yeah, yeah. Like, so for me, I basically worked in an office environment. I sat in company headquarters in an office, sergeant majors next door, company to IC sort of diagonally opposite, the clerks in the door next in the room next to me. Uh, we basically oversaw training. I didn't go down to the metalsmith bay and start teaching anyone how to weld. That's what the metalsmith instructors are there for. You know, I yeah. didn't go. I didn't do that. I did all the management of all the trades and yeah. made sure that people were passing and made sure that the permanent staff who are looking after the trainees while they're in trainees, their careers are progression, they're, they're doing what they need to do. Mm. So essentially, I sat in an office all day. So there was absolutely no requirement to implement any changes because what was in place of me sitting in an office so was a pretty... My, so from my point of view, not being professionally trained in HR or, or risk assessment, I think I could probably say that your job was a low-risk category, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a low-risk category. That I think we, we stipulated that I wouldn't do duties because if they were, when you're a major, you do a uh, field officer. Yeah. So you're on call for a week. And we said that that probably wasn't a good idea to have a pregnant woman on call because there might be a point where I just can't come because maybe I've got morning sickness and I'm throwing up and you need someone there right away to yeah. sort it out. So maybe I can't do overnight duties, but definitely whilst I'm in work, I could hold the duty phone then and respond to things then. So coming um, back to the CO when he's just given you this news, effectively he's fired you. So he's fired me, he's removed me from command, he's totally sacked me, yeah. he's even got a replacement, so he'd, he'd set everything up before. He'd worked it out and set it up before. It was absolutely premeditated. It wasn't just a, oh, you you seem to be a bit unwell, you look tired, or, you, you know, do you think you should get yeah, it yourself? Was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a welfare check-in. This, um, this was a, your fight. He decided it and removed me from post. Um and literally told me to go clear out my office because my replacement would be in on Monday. So, so how did I, you feel then? What did you do? Well, I went back to my office, rang my husband, and even though my husband's a bit of an old-fashioned infantier, he was a bit like, and might have had the opinion that females shouldn't be in the army <laughs> or yeah. in the infantry. He was like, he can't sack you because you're pregnant. That's case of the law. He cannot do that. And I was like, you're right. So I went to see our equality and diversity officer. And he said to me, he can't do this. This is absolutely ridiculous. He cannot remove you from command. Um, your protected characteristic, I'll go have a word with him from an equality and diversity point of view. So he went to have a word with him and the CO was like, I've made my mind up. I don't want her. What, what, was, what, what rank was the equality officer? So he's captain. But, oh, okay. um, but he holds the position of being equality and diversity. So then I did what most people, what you always tell trainees to do when they've got problems. I went to see the padre. So the padre is supposed to be the conscience of the commanding officer and have a direct line to the commanding officer. So I went to see the padre and I said, he's removed me from post because I'm pregnant. I mean, he's never actually done a risk assessment on me. So he's never actually viewed whether the position that I'm doing is risky to my health because he hasn't even followed proper procedure 
also he's never done a performance review so he can't say that he's removing me due to uh, subpar performance because I haven't had any performance review since I've been in post so I hadn't been in post long enough to get my mid-year and I hadn't been in post long enough to have my uh, annual report so I said so no assessment has been done on risk to my health and no assessment has been done on my performance so there's literally no grounds for removing me so the padre agreed that this was absolutely diabolical and he would go and talk to the co because he's the conscience of the co he went and spoke to the co co was adamant that i was going so my next step was i rang the army uh, planning center up in glasgow i mean sorry army personnel center and they said well a commanding officer can move his officers internally to any like position so if he wants to remove you from at the time i was commanding helmand company which actually was the technician's company if you if he wanted to remove me from helmand company um because he felt like that command put me at risk as a pregnant female he could have moved me to one of the other company commands that he felt was less risk maybe the trades um you know different trades or in the different companies but he didn't remove me to a different command. He moved me into BHQ to be a discrete projects officer. So yeah. he took command away from me. So the APC said that he couldn't do that. And then one of the other company commanders that was in the battalion at the time knew what was going on. So she came and spoke to me and she said, you need to phone army headquarters and speak to the personnel department in there because what he's doing is wrong. And although you've tried through the diversity and equality officer, um, I think they're called diversity and inclusion now, though, not equality, okay. but it was equality. They're called diversity and inclusion now. And you've tried through the Padre and you've tried through APC. He's still not listening. So you're going to have to ring APC, um, Army Headquarters. So I rang Army Headquarters. I spoke to a lovely uh, person there and said, we'll take this straight to Employment Tribunal. You're a protective characteristic. He cannot do this. And I was like, whoa, was not uh-huh. expecting that. So, yeah. So I first, my first response was, yeah, I'll take it to employment um, tribunal. How dare you treat me like this? And it's only because I'm a major that I had the courage or the ability to ring people and get people to speak on my behalf because would a private soldier have that access? Yeah. So would a private soldier just been removed from post and just told to suck it up and deal with it and have their career damaged? Yeah. So I thought my first instinct was like, yeah, I'm going to have you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be, be, being fiery at the time. Yeah, I, 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 I totally get that. Yeah. But then I sat down for a little bit and I thought, let's go have a conversation with him. So I went into his office, took myself down to his office, went in and said, I basically said to him, you cannot remove me from post. You've not done my risk assessment. You've not done a performance review. If you're going to proceed... I'm going to take it to employment tribunal because I'm a protective characteristic. So he just sort of sat there and said, well, I'll think about it. And I was like, okay, that's all I can ask you to do. So I thought I've warned you now and I'm giving you an out. And the next day it was another officer's coffee. So we're back down in the officer's mess and we're literally in the corridor. By by the way, by the way, a lot has gone on. You were, you were, this was probably fired on Friday, was it? Or the week, and then you were on the Monday. Thursday. So on the Thursday. So all this happened within the space of a short time then. 
So was, he removed, He told me I was being removed from post on the Thursday. My oh. replacement turned up on the Monday. Oh. I refused to let my replacement in my office. Right, okay. So we went for a whole week where I wouldn't let him in. Right. Oh. <laughs> ah, him in, right, okay, yeah. yeah. I wouldn't let him in. I said, you're not taking over my company. You're not coming in. Literally, what? it was like the bailiffs were at the door and I wouldn't let him across <laughs> the threshold. <laughs> Um, we'd had some. You must, you, know, you must have been the proverbial pain in the for that CO. <laughs> good, on, but, good, good on you. But I wouldn't have been if I was treated appropriately. No, exactly. Yeah. And if he'd have done a risk assessment, and if he'd had that in his hand and said, "I've done the risk assessment, and it's not safe for you because I've done the risk assessment," or and showed I've, some showed some empathy, yeah, yeah, or I've done a performance review and you're not performing. I wouldn't have had, you know, no. I would have been like, you know, not fair cop. I would have obviously argued my point, but I would, yeah. there was just nothing. There was absolutely, it was literally, you're pregnant. I don't want you. Yeah. Um, uh, so now, so now you've got your belly off again, you know, officer's coffee. And then what happens? And we've been in officer's coffee. We've had a cup of coffee. We've had all our nice chats. I've gone to walk back up to the company office which I'd obviously barricaded to not let this replacement in. <laughs> um, so it was, I was off back up to the barricade. And um, in the corridor, he said, hey, and he did say, hey, really casual. Hey, Charlotte, um, I've had a little think about what you said. And actually, I think you're completely right. You should keep your command. So, um, so your replacement's not going to take over the company. Um, they can do some of the projects that I had in mind instead. And just walked off casual as you like and i was just like so furious because the amount of stress that this person had put me under for the space yeah. of maybe two weeks i think it went over by the time i'd spoke to the padre the dni you know and then army hq it was probably over two weeks mm. the amount of stress that he'd put me under and upset and me thinking well if i don't do my commands and i don't get a command report I when it comes to the next job or my next command, I won't. Well, I won't have another command because I haven't done this command. He's literally like ruining my whole career because he's been prejudiced because I'm pregnant. So yeah, it was a really stressful time, and I hate to say it, but I was pregnant, so the hormones are going as well. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So really, not a good time. Not a good time. But <coughs> sorry. Okay, so what happened? Then, with how long had you been in this com uh, command, and what what was the next stage? Uh, I'll just let you um, compose yourself while you're. Are you, are you okay now? With, with having a, a coffee and fit, right? Okay, good. So, I'm I'm so, so you you you're furious, and uh, what are you thinking now? And by the way, you're on you're on your own. You've got you've got uh, um you've got Amber. Uh, uh, you've been on your own, and and you, yeah. You so my husband was yeah, my husband was still in the army at the time, and he was still based in London. Yeah. Um. So what did what did I do next? Literally, I just went back to work as if nothing had happened. <laughs> we go back to the hole. I'll show you. You think I can't do this because I'm pregnant? Well, I'll show you that I can. So I continued in my job for the whole of my pregnancy, um, went on maternity leave at the very last minute. Um, Rose was actually two weeks overdue. 
So I literally stayed till my due date. I had, I, both times I've been pregnant, apart from with my first pregnancy with Amber being poorly while having a medical condition, yeah. my friend would be the pregnancy unicorn. No morning sickness, no swollen feet, no swollen ankles, no oh, tired. Wow. Literally just grow a baby. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was absolutely fine. Um, so I continued to do my job for the whole nine months of my pregnancy. Went on maternity leave, had my time with with Rose. Uh, we had another girl called her Rose. Came back to work with Rose straight into company command. Did two full years at company command, all through COVID as well. Took the company through COVID and dealt with how how on earth do you look after and remotely train? Um, at the time, we had two thousand trainees. So, but my company was four hundred. How do you look after four hundred? Uh, trainees through covid and yeah there's no question of your professional professional performance if there is a question of your professional performance there are mechanisms in place there are um you know mid-year appraisals or mid uh you can have more mid-year appraisals they don't have to just be at the halfway point you can have quarterly appraisals there are performance reviews there are restoring efficiency if you're not happy with someone's performance, there are lots of ways in the army to coach and mentor them and bring their performance on. Yeah, um, that was never offered to me. That was just we don't. He just didn't want me because I was pregnant. Um, I mean, to be fair, he did another double whammy on me. So I stayed in company command the whole time I was pregnant. Then I went on my maternity leave, and he never wrote a report on me. So when I came back off maternity leave, my report book, which obviously is reviewed to inform your next career, your next appointment. Yeah, was yeah, yeah. And he essentially refused to write the report. I don't know why. I don't know if it's because I had one over on him, um, but he wouldn't write my report. So they, in the end, they had to get the next uh, commander up who knew me less well, because they don't see you daily, to just write a report so that I had a report in my book. Yeah, and I, I, I totally appreciate how not having, having a report can impact on your career because I was posted. I, di I did not get promoted because my commanding officer and in fact my troop commander did not write my report because he was away in the Falklands. When he came back, he wrote the report. It was too late, and it said I recommend this man for promotion now. But I'd missed, I'd missed the, the board. I'd missed the decisions. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky that it didn't impact my career in that way. I hadn't missed a board, but unlucky as in you're asking someone to write a report on you that doesn't actually know what you did or how well you did it. Mm, yeah. So you might not get the kudos that you deserve. Um, but saying that, was it actually in my best interest? Because obviously he didn't yeah. want me because I was pregnant and then I challenged him yeah. to the degree. Maybe it was a good thing that he didn't write a report on me because maybe it would have been negative. Maybe he would have found some way um, yeah. to, to be negative in that report i don't know it could have been a poison chalice couldn't, couldn't it could have been but yeah, yeah. if you, oh, you know i would have been there filling out the service complaint <laughs> <laughs> so tell me tell me about right while you've been doing while you've been doing this and and the, the peaks and troughs of uh, uh and and i make no excuses of the fact in fact i'm proud of you for being female and being able to get through what you've got through what tell me about how your adventure training aspect of the military and what sort of tricks you got up to with that? So how, um, how that's developed you as a person. 
Yeah, so in case anyone listening doesn't really know what adventurous training is for, the whole idea of it is to take people out of their everyday um, environment and put them into a less comfortable environment to challenge their mettle or their resolve, yeah. um, make them work as a team, to make them um, face things that they don't normally face, um, to overcome challenges, environment different, and and just generally develop them as a person out of the normal soldier environment. Yeah. Um, I'm really lucky when I was a second lieutenant I went away to do biathlon skiing um, so the skiing with the rifles where you yeah. ski cross country and then you go into the range and shoot and I um, probably due to my love of cross country running seems to be a bit of a natural I could ski around the countryside and then also whilst I was in the officer training corps um, at university I was in their shooting team I've always oh, been good. a shot, so I could basically combine cross-country fizz with shooting and I seem to be a bit of a natural so I ended up doing biathlon skiing for the army um, for seven years in my junior career oh. and we go to Sweden Norway Germany um, France Italy we go everywhere really doing this training and then as I've done that training, I've done all of my instructor qualifications, range management qualifications and coaching qualifications so that I can take soldiers. So whilst I've not competitively skied since 2009-10 season, I've gone back and taught other soldiers. And I just find that it's incredibly rewarding. Uh, Cross-country skiing is not for the faint-hearted. No. It's really hard and physical skiing. You're in minus conditions. So just before Christmas, I was in Norway and it was minus 15, minus 10 the whole well, time. Well. <clears throat> so you've got to take soldiers out of their normal warm conditions. You've got to teach them to have the discipline to wear the right equipment Um uh, understand about how important hygiene is. You know, you need... You can't be putting on the next day. You can't be putting sweaty, wet layers back on. Everything needs to have been clean and dried and washed again, a bit like wet dry drills in the field. They need to be able to recognise the signs of um, of frost nip, frostbite, cold weather injuries. But also it's really important to recognise um, heat stress injuries. Mm. So um, the soldiers that unfortunately died in the Bracken Beacons were having too much warm kit on when they were... Yeah. Yeah. And, and it was very hot weather. No, no, I don't think they had too much warm kit on. It was very hot. It was very hot, yeah, yeah. So the same can happen in minus temperatures because you've got too many layers on yeah. and your body can't breathe and you can't cool yourself down. So, um, so yeah, we teach them a lot of really important skills of heat stress injury, cold weather injuries, how to operate in these harsh environments, and then obviously the fitness to do that. And then also we've got the discipline of shooting. You're shooting the targets as well. Um, so, yeah, I've done that literally for, for most of my career and I absolutely love it. Um, this one, this trip was my last one. So I think I enjoyed it more than ever. And I do get a perverse sense of saying to the 20 year old soldiers when they can't keep up with me, come on, I'm a woman and I'm 43. Keep up. Yeah. Um, so uh, and they're just like, how is she doing that? And to be fair, it's technique over fitness. You yeah. can grizz it with your fitness for so long, but once you've got the technique, like in most sport, once you've got the technique, yeah, it, it becomes it becomes a doddle, and yeah, yeah. But I absolutely love 
um, taking someone who can't even stand on their skis on day one and then mm. by the end of the season, you know, seeing yeah. them racing, hitting targets and, yeah. you know, just thriving in that environment and just uh, the joy it brings them. But yeah, it's not it's not alpine skiing. It's not for the faint-hearted. Anyone no. who turns thinks that they're going to be uh, on the Apre ski, that they've yeah. signed up for the wrong ski holiday. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> I remember my first biggest adventure training oh I was about 19 in Germany and I volunteered for the to cross the Swiss Alps the high level route 160 kilometers in two weeks wow and the views were that I fell down a crevasse which was a whole different experience fortunately I was roped on so I think that 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 teaches you a lot more than just the technique itself doesn't it it teaches you about yourself yeah, I've done some good expeditions as well. So I've, with the army, I've trekked the Rockies and I've kayaked from Canada all the way to Alaska. And wow. Yeah. So I've done some really good experts and they're unsupported. You're on your own. You're with the team. You're relying on your own skills, your own map reading, your own survival techniques, your own stuff like that. So I think the army is very good at taking people out of their comfort zone, but mm. it has trained them. It's give them the tools to be able to achieve what they've set out to achieve. Right. Um, I I think this is the biggest thing I'm going to miss about um, being a civilian, that no one's going to pay me to do these kind of things anymore. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was something that I actually had to get to grips with pretty, pretty sharpish, because now if I want to do something like that, I have to pay thousands of pounds, whereas in the army, I just volunteer and there you go mate you, there's your rations off you go uh, and you're quite right about the fact that what uh, i don't watch these celebrity get me out of here or the, the who does because no, it really bugs me because they're just dropping people in that don't know anything about it whereas you're quite right in the military we do have training of some some form or another before we dropped into it and then we have to learn on on, on the on the go, really, but at least we've got a basis and we're surrounded by people who are really good at what they're doing yeah. as well. Yeah, I'm the type of person that watches that hunted program or watch yeah. that um, or watch the one where they get washed up on the desert island, and I'm oh. thinking, I I would totally boss that. I'd be <laughs> yeah, so. Good. I know. Yeah. It's all military skills, but um, but truth yeah. is, I, I'm not going to volunteer for that because I might embarrass myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, and and it was interesting uh, the word. Failure and fail has come up a few times, and I, I, I was I, I can't take credit for this mnemonic. You might want to remember it though. Failure or fail is first attempt in learning. Yeah. So I, although the word failure sounds harsh, um, it's the way you approach that fail. Um, so as long as you reflect on what caused you to get your the results that you didn't want. Because for me, I've been lucky. It's never been total failure. Just maybe mm. I didn't do something as well as I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when I've not been happy with that, I've looked at, okay, what can I do better next time and how can I address that um, to, to do that? So just going back to um, my staff college. So when I was at staff college, I didn't – it's um, master's level education. I didn't do as well as I wanted to do. Uh, essentially because I was single mom for the whole course. It was very stressful with a baby that doesn't sleep when you try to study. So mm. when I completed staff college and my things were a lot more settled with Amber, I enrolled in another master's degree through right. the Defence University. So I did a master's in defence acquisition. 
and um yeah I passed that as well as I wanted to that time cool. and then more recently I've just done my MBA with as part of my resettlement to leave the army and I, I just achieved a distinction in that but I think what really drove me to do those degrees is the fact that I was really annoyed at myself that I only passed the um the stack course which is master's level because it was due to maybe my personal situation um but I didn't want I felt like I felt like the army was saying to me that I wasn't capable of master's level education, that I couldn't analyze at that academic level. Mm. And I was like, I can analyze at that academic level. I just couldn't do it at that point in time because I was a single mom with a daughter with more needs. So I can do that level of critical thinking, but you, but I just felt like you're not, listening to my situation and you're not helping me like if i'd have turned around and said oh i'm dyslexic here's my dyslexic certificate you would have given me 20 more minutes in the exam yeah 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 yeah. but with me just turning around saying i'm on my own with my daughter and i'm exhausted and i just couldn't take any of the reading in that wasn't you know i was like oh well there was no yeah it wasn't catered for whatsoever oh well unlucky so i felt like i needed to prove not just to myself, but to them, that I am actually very capable of being analytical and thinking at that level. So <laughs> so here's a degree. <laughs> and it goes, goes back to, um, even though I'd obviously got my engineering degree from my first degree, but it goes back to that English teacher that told me with my revision timetable that I wasn't gonna do well. So I now I'm 43 years old and I think of that English teacher and I think of that member of the directing staff at staff college and I literally want to say three degrees told you so <laughs> yeah, yeah there you go mate yeah exactly and interesting because I, I, I've pretty much got I've got an idea how you'll answer this question but I want to ask you I want to ask you first to test if I'm correct what's the secret in of your success so the secret of my success i honestly believe is having a why so i always know i've i've always know why i want to do something so before i make a decision why i'm going to do that i need to understand why it's important to me and if you know why it's important you know what your motivation is and whether you're going to stick to it so for me, it's always been engineering. I absolutely love engineering. I really, I have a curiosity, a natural curiosity. I'm inquisitive and I want to fix problems. So for me, I always wanted to be an engineer. And what I've absolutely loved looking back over my career is being part of a team that doesn't always know the answers and we have to figure it out together. We have to use everybody's expertise, everybody's knowledge. And the solution we might come up with might not be perfect the first time, but we can rework it and get to a better solution each time. So I knew for me that my why is always challenging myself in a technical capacity, but with a team, not just relying on myself to figure it out because I don't know all the answers. So that's kind of like my professional why, and that's what I really like doing. But my domestic or my personal why is always my family. I've come from a very good, strong family, and I want to create that same strong, positive family for my children to launch them into success. Because so I, 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 I do believe that if you people might not always have brilliant childhoods, and it doesn't define them, they can go on to be successful and well. 
But sometimes if you've had the right starting block in the first place, and there's plenty of people that come from really good families and are not done well, I know that. But if I can set the conditions now in my own daughters to go on and achieve and be successful, then I want to do that. So I want to make sure that my home environment is prioritised and good. Yeah. And it's kind of like if everybody's happy at home and we're all getting on well and we're all doing our clubs and the girls are doing well in school and my husband's doing well in his new career because he's been out of the army for seven years now, everything's good. You know, everything's good. And that will help me in my professional career because, you know, sometimes when things are good at home, you can concentrate and give a little bit more in your professional career. Um, so I know that my why at home is to make sure that everybody's healthy and happy. And my why at work is to have that technical challenge and solve it with a team. And as long as those two are always in support of one another and one's not taking too much away from the other, I think I'll be happy. So for me, I'm quite good at thinking, what do I want long term in the future and how do I work that back? Mm. So I knew that I wanted to leave the army at the end of my intermediate regular commission. So instantly I had a timeline. So in 2015, when Amber had come along and I thought, I don't want to be deployed for nine, six months at a time anymore. Her needs come first. I can't be moving house every two years because, like I said before, we'll move her out of her hospital catchment areas and we want her to always stay in the catchment area of Bristol Children's Hospital. So straight away, I knew that the my army career was not the career for me anymore. Not because I want to be a mum. That's not why. It's because I want an equally challenging, rewarding career, but one which doesn't need me to move house or go away for six to nine months at a time. So I still want a fully demanding, full-time, you know, brain-hurting career sometimes, but I don't want to geographically move around the country or Europe all the which, time which makes sense yeah which, make, which makes sense so I so I knew back in 2015 when Amber was was two that I needed to figure out my out plan and you get to a certain point in your army career where all of a sudden the pension matters when you join the army and yeah. they say this is your pension you're like yeah whatever not interested yes. in that but there becomes a point when you're married and you've got children when you're like oh, oh what's this pension thing what's it yeah. what's this pension because future financial stability is really important. So I looked into my pension and thought, right, what do I need to do? And they changed the pension in 2015. They, it, uh, future pension came in. So a lot of us had our original pensions that we thought removed from us and uh, we were put onto the new pension. And so I was like, right, what does the new pension look like? What does that mean for me? How long do I have to serve? So I realised on the new pension, you have to serve a minimum of 20 years and you have to be over the age of 40. So I knew I had to go to 20 years to get that, that full pension yeah. because that gave me financial stability for the rest of my life, for my family. That's unparalleled mm. in, in, in the rest of the um, civilian careers. I'll never get that again. So I knew I had to go to 20 years, um, which is 2024. I'm just leaving now. So I'd essentially had nine years to plan my exit strategy. So like I said, I did my master's in acquisition and that had a return of service of two years. So I figured out that I needed to get on that course on the next academic uh, calendar course so that I could do my return of service because the master's was part time. So if I managed to get through it in one go, it would have been three years. But if I'd have been deployed, had pauses, yeah. it, it could have been longer. So I had to get on the first course that was available. So I got on the first course. It actually took me five years to get through it, which was lucky. So then my res my return of service, I got in as well. 
Right. So I was I was literally planning this from from day one, from 2015. Then I also from just learning from my husband and watching him uh, leave the army, he didn't really know what he wanted to do. So he didn't actually use any of his enhanced learning credits. And he's in the situation now where he's still got free enhanced learning credits. But if he was to use them, obviously they're funded, but it's more about time. We go back to what we were saying before about how important time is. He would either have to take time off from work to do the courses or he would potentially use his leave time, which means that would be time away from family. So he's got into the situation now where he doesn't feel like he can give the time to to use his enhanced learning credits. So I straight away I was like, I've got to use these enhanced learning credits while I'm in the army yeah, because yeah. the army will support you doing courses. So that's when, for me, um, if you're a REMI officer and you come through the REMI engineering pathway, I've worked my way up to chartered engineer, which is available to everybody that joins the REMI as an officer and can follow the engineering pathway as long as you've got the right qualifications from the right universities and you it follows the accreditation. So I'd worked through all of that. So I'm leaving as a chartered engineer. I've done my master's in acquisition. I was like, what can I do next? So I'm looking around at all these project management qualifications, risk, you know, scrum master. I'm thinking, which one do I do? Which one do I do? And I was like going through the list and I saw it listed that you could do an MBA. And I thought, well, I'll do an MBA. So then I enrolled on the MBA um, because I thought it kind of trumps everything. It might not, but it was my theory that if someone says, have you got any qualifications in project management? I go, no, but I've got an MBA. (laughs) You know, so... So again, I enrolled on that one using my enhanced learning credits and I had to use two sets of enhanced learning credits because I did, first of all, I did the postgraduate diploma and then I topped the postgraduate diploma up to be an MBA by doing the thesis bit. So I've got one left. But again, that's planning because with your enhanced learning credits, you can only do one per tax year, which people don't realise. And you can't apply to spend your next one unless your current course is finished. So when a postgraduate diploma, because it's 12 modules, can take you two years, you can't apply for the next, to use your next enhanced learning credit because you haven't finished the postgraduate diploma, even though you're already in the second, in the, in a new tax yeah, yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. So you really have to be quite savvy with mapping your timeline out. Because I knew that when I leave the army, I absolutely want a challenging, rewarding career that's technical based, working with a team of people, not mass leadership, not huge companies, but, you know, a dedicated team of people solving problems. And I knew that I wanted to be quite senior in that organisation. So I needed to get some qualifications that I felt um, civilian environment would recognise, like the MBA. So, So I did map it out and I and I did plan ridiculously early but I mean that might just be me because I I can see myself in in the future where I want to be so I want to be in the energy sector I want to be part of the climate change sustainability um, legislations Um, I want the world to continue for my children and their children going forward so I really want to be part of that and to be part of that I was like what qualifications do I need to get there and I just figured it out backwards. So I'm leaving the army in a really good position. I'm not leaving thinking, oh, I still haven't used my enhanced learning credits. How am I going to fit that in? I've yeah. used them. I'm good. I, 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 which which brings me nicely onto the question of the importance of a mentor and a coach, because as you know, that's what I do, and you've done it in the military to various guys. Because and I like 
I like the aspect of leadership is getting someone to do what they wouldn't have done had you not been there, which is great when you teach someone to uh, a biathlete skiing and shooting or when I train people to windsurf who couldn't even stand up on the board on the water and then can sail. So I totally get that. What, how important do you think during your career? And, and I think you've had negative mentoring or coaching as well as positive in the fact that you've said, I told you so, I could do that. How important do you think that is to have someone... So I, so I, I think it's really, really important to surround yourself by a selection of mentors um, because I think it's really good to have diversity um, and people will see different things in you that other people won't. And then you can pick a mix, what you like, what you don't like. Because um, you, you're not going to do something that your mentor says all the time unless you actually agree with it and feel that's the right thing to do. Whenever I've come, whenever I've had a bad leader, I find that they are really, really easy to learn from because it's glaringly obvious what's wrong. So when you've had a bad leader, you can look at that bad leader and you can easily say, I'm never going to be you. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to behave that way. I'm not having that kind of culture in my organization. So bad is really easy to recognize and really easy to avoid because you know the feelings that it gave you. So yeah. you're just like not going there easy. Looking for good is a little bit harder sometimes because you really have to think about what was good. How did that make me feel? I would say one of the the best leaders are the leaders that know you because of the feeling that that creates that trust that mutual respect that comes with it so when you walk into the office in the morning and people say hi how are you how was your weekend generic questions they're not even waiting for an answer mm. they're just expecting to you go yeah fine how was yours yeah fine yeah, how was yours the curse the cursory question yeah yeah, yeah yeah when you walk into that office and someone says to you oh how did your family party go? Did you have a good bike ride at the weekend? Yeah. How was Puff Mudder? They've actually taken an interest in you and what you said you were going to do at the weekends. They've remembered and now they're asking you about it and you're obviously telling them. That makes you feel invested in, valued. And straight away, you're, a, you're part of that organisation, you're a team, there's a good yeah. culture. So that's something that I've taken away. Always get to know your team, not only because you need their technical expertise to help you achieve your business goals, but if you understand their personal situations and take a personal interest in their lives, you know how to get the best out of them as well. Yeah. And also they will feel like they can come and talk to you about problems or about good ideas and you're going to be receptive to it because it's an open mind. There's Some people say, my door is always open. I never say my door's open. My mind is open. Come and ask me the questions. Come and challenge my thought process. Come and think to me. Yeah. So I, I think that if you can have a relationship with someone, which is more than just on the professional level, whether it's a mentor and a coach, they're going to understand what makes you tick a little bit more and you're going to trust them a little bit more. So you're going to open up to them a little bit more. And that's how you're going to get more out of the coaching and mentoring or you're going to be able to coach and mentor somebody better. Uh, which, which, I mean, because I believe in the values like trust, integrity, honesty, and when you've got that, then that helps you really bond. I'm going to direct, I'm going to direct the question at you now, which might seem a bit 
unfair in one respect because it's about transitioning from the military to civilian street. The reason I'm going to pose this question to you in particular is because you spent so long planning your departure from the military and looking and, and analysing what you do well, what needs to be improved. I want I want to hear your answer from a point of view of someone who technically is still in the military, even though you're on a bit of R&R &R now. Uh, how, how transferable do you think the skills are that you've, that you've discovered and learned? For me, in terms of my professional qualifications, being an engineer and being an engineering officer, they're in, instantly transferable. You know, I'm accredited um, with the um, Institute of Mechanical Engineers. I've passed the uh, requirements. I've got the board. So that's really easy. I, that's a sticker on the tin. I've given myself a label there. That's really easy. But in terms of being an effective leader or a good manager, um, that's all come from the army. And I think that the, the army... There's a whole debate anyway about nature nurture for a leader. Is is it someone's nature or can it be trained? Um, I believe it's a bit of both um, because you can always improve on whatever natural leadership ability you've got and you can make it better. I do really like um, a famous quote from Slim, leadership is playing you. So it goes back to being transparent, having integrity and being authentic. So as long as you're being your honest self um, and, you know, you are transparent, you've got integrity, you'll be able to lead honest, honestly. Um, we're not all transformational leaders. We're not all charismatic. But for me, I would never follow a char charismatic leader. I would want to see the substance behind the person. So I would want to see that backed up, not just because you've charmed me. So I would, you know, I, I would say that, um, the army has taught me to be a servant leader, to work with the team, for the team always. And I would subscribe to that going forward. And I think that everything that the army does, is it from the day one you walk through those doors, whether it's a officer cadet and you're going to be a second lieutenant or whether it's a, a private soldier, you are taught to take responsibility for yourself. You are given tasks or teams to lead at every rank. You're given what the task needs to, what the effect is. So I want this, but you're never told how to do it. Mm. You know, nobody micromanages you. They say this is what needs to be done and you're trusted and you're coached and you're mentored to achieve that. You're not just left to get on with it and get lost, you know. Yeah, yeah. Always got people around you that you can go to and ask for advice. So I think that the transferable skills from the Army eyes, they instill from you from day one that you can lead. And they instill from you from day one that you always need to look up to what the next job is because you might need to step up and do that next job. And it instills from you to day one that you need to look after your teammates because literally your life depends upon it. Now, I know in Civvy Street, there's no lives depending on it, depending on what role you go into. But the success of business depends on all of those people. So if all of those people aren't getting on, aren't working together, you're not going to achieve that effect. So I think all of these like um, values that are instilled from you in day one and repeated constantly, um, to, to, you are indoctrinated. You become indoctrinated, but it becomes part of who you are. So you always work with people. You don't overlook all the team members. You use everybody's skills. Um, you problem solve together, um, you know, and you really look after one another, really look after one another to get the best performance for the team at the end of the day. And I think that is what makes military people um, most transferable and most valuable to, civ to civilian street because we're not in it for ourselves. We're always in it for the, the general good of the team. 
yeah, yeah. I think that the the power of the team is always stronger than the individual. Yeah, and I totally uh, subscribe to that and agree. And before we wrap up, I've just got one more question, the Colombo question, if you like. Oh, just one more thing. <laughs> What's the one tip you would give to someone who's leaving the military or has already left the, left the military uh, and is a veteran or even someone who's in business? The one tip you give them to help them get success? Um, so one tip for me, it's all about positive mindset and what you can do to help you. So what can I do? What can I change for my situation so that I can achieve? I'm not a veteran yet. <laughs> Ask me in a few months. Yeah. Sometimes the veteran community has a negative um, feeling to it where veterans feel like they're owed something. Um, you know, I've served this many years, I'm owed this. You don't have firefighters, police officers, nurses going around saying, I've worked, you know, in the NHS for 50 years, I'm owed this. Yeah, but their yeah. job is relentless and hard. You don't have firefighters going around saying, I'm owed this. I know in the military, the type of work that we sometimes do, not 24-7 do, sometimes do, is hard and relentless. And it's the worst day in the office. But I don't. I think you've got to be positive. You're not owed anything. You've got to bring about the change yourself. So you've been given an incredible tool set behind you. You need to look at that tool set and think, how can I use this to bring about positive change? How can and it's taking ownership of your next step and being positive. That's that's my advice. It's very easy to sit back and expect things to happen, but the reality of of leaving the service is. You're not in the army anymore. You don't have these people around you all the time telling you you're great and supporting you. You don't. So for the first time, your little team's gone. They've gone. So you need to find your new team and you need to make the right steps in a positive manner to get your new team. Yeah. You need to belong in. And if you nobody wants, to, we all know that negative person that we don't want to be around. We see them come in. We're like, oh God, I'm going to have my ear bent for half an hour. You don't want to be with them. So don't be that person. I know it's really easy to say because, you know, life happens and life gets you down and it's hard. But sometimes you really just need to build on on all the positive things and think, right, how can I change this and make it better for myself? Thank and you. the are lots of tools to do that. Yeah. And on that, on that note, I remember uh, I was taught early on that take responsibility for your success, not only your success, take responsibility for your failure as well and, and make sure you hang around with people who are where you want to be. Because uh, like I've said before, that I I am not interested in, about being the smartest person in the room because I, I can't grow if I'm the smartest person in the room. I, I, I don't even mind being the dumbest person in the room, metaphorically speaking, because I can learn then from from my peer group, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, thank you very much, Lala. It's been an absolute pleasure. I do wish you the very best in your career in civilian life. I'm sure you'll be an absolute star. Uh, I wish your family well too, and uh, we'll keep in touch. Yeah, thank definitely you. keep in touch. I've had a brilliant time. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.